I want to begin with a question before we launch into this long passage. And the question is, how can people be made loving? We would all agree that it would be a good thing if people's hearts can be made loving hearts and serving hearts. Singapore would be a better place. London, where I live, would be a better place if people had loving hearts. That's straightforward, isn't it? We all agree it would be a good thing uh, if that were the case. But the question is, how is it to happen? I think you'd agree that if we could think of some way in which to turn human hearts into loving hearts, uh, we'd be very wise people. Don't you think we could have a prize for wisdom um, if we could do that? I'm sure you've noticed that um, religion doesn't seem to help. We've prayed already about the troubles about that film made in the United States, and, and it's obvious all over the world that religion is a source of division. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Hinduism, um, Islam, other parts of the world, other religious clashes between different religions. Religion doesn't seem to help at all. Here's a, an atheist writing in the magazine Nature. He said, the past as well as the present can leave no doubt that the variety of religions is a calamitously divisive force in human affairs. So religion doesn't help. You know, human religion doesn't make people loving. Nor does um, the idea that's prevalent in a lot of, um, certainly in Western cultures, that what I need to make me more loving is for my self-esteem to be boosted. I don't know if this idea has currency in Singapore or not, but in Britain, where I live, the idea is widespread that um, the reason I behave badly is because, you know, people have treated me badly. I have low self-esteem. You know, I'm sorry I murdered someone. It wasn't really my fault. Um, it, it's because I've got low self-esteem. And what you need to do is to make me feel better about myself. And that doesn't work either. A friend of mine who's a psychiatrist is writing a book about that to prove from the evidence that that doesn't work. The new atheism, I don't know whether you get that in Singapore, people like um, Philip Pullman and Richard Dawkins and uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, um, and, and their aggressive atheism, that doesn't help because if you've read any of their books, you'll know that they're cold books. They're cold, harsh, angry books, and there's no love there. But I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, what is it about real, authentic Christianity that makes people loving people? Of course, there are pseudo-Christianities that, that people can hate, just like in any other religion. But what is it about real Christianity that makes people um, loving? A friend of mine uh, is a journalist and used to live in China. And he was traveling across China um, to write a book. And he, he's a Christian man. And he, one Sunday... He went to a tiny little house church in the middle of nowhere in rural China. And he noticed at the, the, the table at the front that they used for the Lord's Supper that they had on it the Chinese character for love. I guess it was probably the Mandarin character for love in the part of China where, where he was. And uh, he commented in his book, he said, Confucius and Mao Zedong uh, gave many things to the Chinese people, but love was not one of them. And then he said, perhaps that's why the churches are now full. Interesting comment, isn't it? What is it about real Christianity that makes people loving 
um, people? So that's our question, and I think that our passage is going to give us the answer. Have a look, if you would. It's, it's a long passage, and uh, it, it's, it's been a challenge to me to study this long passage and to think how to preach it in a way that draws out what, what I think holds it together. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, you, you'll have to think and see if you think I'm right. What we'll be doing with it is a bit like um, I'm hoping to do with the Grand Prix tonight. I'm, I'm hoping to go up to someone's office on the 31st floor somewhere and see the Grand Prix from a distance, you know, from a height, so you can see the whole thing. That's, that's what I'm hoping to do. Whereas the poor people who've paid for expensive tickets will just be sitting in one little bit and going zoom, 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 going past like that, so they won't be able to see it. So, in a way, what I'm hoping to do for this passage is to say, let's have a look at this whole big sweep, all of Luke chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, and see what's going on um, there. Let's have a quick look over the passage first, and then I'm going to take us through it. Verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this. That's referring back to um, chapter 6 um, from verse 17, which is the, chapter 6 verse 17 to the end of the chapter is what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's some teaching that Jesus did on a, a level place, on a, 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 a plain. So verse 1, when Jesus has finished saying all these this to the people who were listening, he entered... Capernaum, that's the context. And then what we've got is this. We've got verses 2 to 10, we've got the healing of the centurion's servant. Um, Then in verses 11 to 17, you've got the raising of the widow of Nain's son. Then in verses 18 to 23, you've got a question from John the Baptist and Jesus' answer. Just have a look, if you would, at verse 23. At the end of his answer, Jesus says... Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I'm using the new NIV, but it's not, it's not very different from the old one. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And that's a kind of punchline saying. That's a kind of punctuation mark in the passage, verse 23. So I'm going to use that as a dividing point in the passage. Then from verses 24 through to 35, Jesus talks, and Luke comments, about John the Baptist. Have a look at verse 35. Verse 35, Jesus says, But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now that is a, that's a kind of punchline comment. Let me admit to you that when I've read my Bible in the past, I, I haven't been able to make head or tail of that verse. <laughs> Do you know that? You, you read through a gospel, and, you, and then suddenly Jesus says, Wisdom is proved right by all her children. And I, and I think to myself, I don't know what the Lord meant by that. But as I've been thinking about this passage and working on it, I think verse 35 is the key to the whole passage. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. I'll I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. And I often find this in the Bible, that the bits that puzzle me when I think about them are often the bits that really um, help me. After that, verses 36 through to 50 are the... um, forgiveness and the love of the the forgiven sinful woman and then verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8 is the account of the women who've been cured um, who are now serving Jesus and the disciples band so I think verses 23 blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me because of me and verse 35 um, wisdom is, is proved right by all her children are the punctuation marks of the passage 
So I'm going to divide it up into, into three. As we go through, I want us to notice, um, first of all, two attitudes. And obviously we'll need to move through these passages um, faster than we would do if we were just preaching one of them. But I want us to notice two attitudes. And, and I want us to notice that there's an attitude that says, um, I'm a good person and God owes me one. And there's an attitude that says, I'm a desperate, sinful, needy person who doesn't deserve anything, and I'm crying to God for mercy. Those are the two attitudes. You find those two attitudes in most churches. You find those two attitudes all over the world. Have a look at verses 1 to 10 to start with. Or verse 2 to 10. Verse 2. There was a centurion, uh, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. So there's a crisis, there's a desperate need. Picture it. You know, the man is very sick, uh, perhaps a fever, whatever it is, but he's about. He's on the point of death. Any minute now he's going to die. In verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus. And look carefully at what he did. He sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus. I mean, that's, sensible common sense isn't it Jesus is a Jewish teacher the centurion is a Gentile why not send some elders of the Jews the elders of the local synagogue to him so he does and they're asking him to come and heal his servant when they came to Jesus verse 4 they pleaded earnestly with him but listen to what they said this man you can imagine this interview there's Jesus and these elders of the synagogue come up to him and they say, we, we've got a request for you, Rabbi Jesus. This man, this um, centurion, he, he's, a, he's a Gentile, but he, he's a Roman centurion, but he deserves to have you do this to cure his, his servant because he loves our nation, he's, a, he's a, a lover of the Jewish people, and he's built our synagogue. He's a benefactor. So what are they saying to Jesus? They're saying to Jesus, this man is a good bloke. He's a good bloke. He's an upright, religious, God-fearing man. He deserves a favour from God. So why don't you give him what he deserves? That's what the, the elders of the Jews say to Jesus. And for whatever reason, Jesus goes with them. Perhaps I'm a little surprised Jesus does go with them after that introduction, but he does. And verse 6, he's not far from the house when he gets another message the centurion sent now not elders of the Jews but friends that is I imagine Gentile friends to say to Jesus the complete opposite of what, what the elders of the Jews had said look at this Lord don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof isn't that interesting I wonder what would have happened if the second message had been the same as the first if Jesus had got to the man's house and the centurion had come to the front door and said, thank you, I'm glad you've come, you're a bit late. You're a bit slow, I'm a good bloke, I've done good stuff. You know, I built this synagogue. I remember once going to visit a lady in the, in the village where I was a minister. And um, she was an old lady. And the first thing she said to me, the first thing she said was, I want you to know that my husband and I have done a lot for your church. <laughs> you know, we deserve, I'm surprised you haven't come to visit sooner, that kind of, that kind of thing. But now, I imagine if that had happened, that the Lord Jesus might well have walked away. Because he, he wasn't interested in doing things for people who thought they deserved it. But when the centurion says to him, verse 
um, six, I don't deserve to come you, have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I didn't dare come to you because I'm not worthy. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he says in verses, um, verse 8, he says, I understand authority. I'm a man under Caesar's authority. And because I'm under Caesar's authority, I have soldiers under me. And when I say to a soldier, go, he goes. I say to a soldier, come, he comes. And I recognize that you're a man under the authority of God and that you carry the authority of God, just as I carry the authority of Caesar. And I understand that you've got the authority to heal, um, whether or not I deserve it. And that you can do that. And Jesus said in verse 9, he was amazed. And he said, I've never seen such faith, not even in Israel. He hadn't seen it from the elders of the Jews who'd come to him. That wasn't faith. That was, that was asking him to, to, to you know, do what the guy deserved. But faith is coming empty-handed, and Jesus loves that. Faith is coming empty-handed and saying, I don't deserve. So two attitudes. The attitude of the elders, he's a deserving guy. The attitude of the um, centurion himself, I don't deserve it. And then wonderfully the man is healed. Now have a look at 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, verse 11. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. So you can imagine the scene as Jesus comes into the town with this great um, gathering of people around him. And as he approaches the town gate, verse 12, a dead person is being carried out. He comes in, and as, they, as this great crowd arrives, they are interrupting a funeral. What a sad and awkward occasion. And he's not only a dead person, he's the only son of his mother and she's a widow. So here is a picture of absolute desperate need. She's a widow, she has no husband to look after her. She had an only son, but now he's dead and here, he, here is his corpse. Desperate need, she doesn't deserve anything, but she's in desperate need. And there's a large crowd from the town with her. And verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Just pure love. Nothing to do with what she deserved. Nothing to do with what the man deserved, but just pure unmerited grace and love. And he said to her, don't cry. It's a very emotional scene, isn't it? Very wonderful scene. And then Jesus goes up and he touches the beer where they're carrying the corpse, which is a shocking thing to do. Really shocking thing to do. Makes you ceremonially unclean, apart from anything else. And the bearers stood still. I imagine they stood still rigid, not knowing what was going to happen. And then Jesus says, speaks to the corpse. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Speaks to the corpse. Young man, it's time to get up. I'm, I'm telling you, get up. And the man sits up. And then wonderfully, uh, Luke says, um, Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's pure love, isn't it? Jesus loves because his father loves to help those who don't deserve anything but are in desperate need and come to him empty-handed like that. And they're astonished, verse 16. They're filled with awe and they, they say, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Then let's look at the next passage, 18 through to 23. Again, we're looking for these two attitudes. So John's disciples, verse 18, just glance back at chapter 3, verse 20 for a moment in your Bibles. Just turn back to chapter 3, verse 20, which is the last time we heard of John the Baptist in Luke's Gospel. Chapter 3, verse 20, Herod added this 
to them all, that is to all his sins, he locked John up in prison. So the last we heard of John the Baptist, he's been locked in prison. So back to chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples tell John, who's in prison, about all these things Jesus is doing. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord, the Lord Jesus, to ask, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? In other words, John the Baptist is asking the question, is what you're doing, which is reaching out to undeserving people, including a Gentile, people who don't deserve anything, but people who are in desperate need, is that a sign that you're the Messiah, you're the one who's to come, you're the saviour, you're the rescuer, um, or should we expect somebody else? When they came to Jesus, verse 20, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? So that's the question. And then Luke comments, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. He replied to the messengers, go back, report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Look at all those categories. Those categories are not deserving people. Those categories are not worthy people. Those categories are needy people. And all those things are, are symbolic, really. I mean, as well as being real, they're symbolic of, of sinful people. Blindness, the inability to see spiritual truth. Lameness, the inability to do what I know is right. Um, deafness, the inability to hear God's word. Leprosy, an infectious nature. The sin, that, sin that's infectious, that touches every part of me and other people. And above all, deadness. And, and poverty, destitution. And so Jesus concludes verse 23, Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Now what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, grace, which is Jesus reaching out on his Father's behalf, freely out of pure unmerited love to desperately needy and undeserving people, is a scandalous thing because religious people don't like it. So religious people stumble at grace, don't they? I mean, you think of the, the only man of the Khmer Rouge who's currently been put in prison, Brother Dooch, who's been, been professed faith in Christ, and I understand from a Cambodian friend, it seems to be a genuine conversion, this man who ran the prison camp where they sent people to the killing fields. Isn't it a scandal that this man should be forgiven? that God should reach out to such an evil, evil man and that he should be forgiven by the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because of what I'm doing, that I'm reaching out to the poor, the blind, the deaf, the dead, the lame, the leprous. That's what Jesus loves to do. So two attitudes to that. Now, we'll follow straight on. We'll pull it all together later on. Verses 24 to 35, I've called two prophets. And by two prophets, I mean Jesus, who is more than a prophet, but who is described as a great prophet in our, in our chapter, and John the Baptist, who is a prophet, and also more than a prophet. So I mean Jesus and John the Baptist when I say two um, prophets. So let's see what happens in 24 onwards. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John the Baptist. So all this conversation is about Jesus and John the Baptist and how they, they relate to one another. And he says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness, the wilderness of Judea, where, where John was preaching and baptizing? What did you go to see? A reed swayed by the wind? A weak man? 
No, certainly not. John the Baptist was not a weak man. He was a gutsy, courageous man. If not, what did you go and see? Well, if he was gutsy and courageous, maybe it was because he was rich and powerful. A man dressed in fine clothes? No, says Jesus. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. So he was a strong man, but he wasn't, he wasn't a rich or a powerful man. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, says Jesus, and more than a prophet. And then he quotes in verse 20 from the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, the promise that there'll be a messenger coming ahead of God to prepare God's way before him. And Jesus says of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. What an accolade. No human being greater than John the Baptist, but the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament. I know he's in the New Testament, but he's a prophet of the Old Covenant just before Jesus came. He's the last and greatest one. He's the supreme um, forerunner. Very, very great man. And then the next bit... 29 and 30 is in brackets in my translation and I think probably in yours. And it's a pity it's in brackets because it's tremendously important. Look at it. It's really important, these two verses. This is Luke's comment. Luke says, All the people, that is the general ordinary people, even the despised, you know, the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. That is, God's way of doing things was right because they'd been baptised by John. So those people who'd been baptised by John, whose baptism, you remember, was a baptism of repentance. So they were people who had come to John the Baptist saying, I realise that I'm a sinner. I need to turn from my sin. I need to cry to God for mercy. And they'd, they'd gone through John's baptism of repentance. Um, because they, 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 they did that, they recognised that what Jesus was doing was right. So the people who believed John the Baptist believed Jesus. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, the religious people, the people who were respectable, the people who thought God owed them one because they were so good, they rejected God's purpose for themselves because they'd not been baptised by John. Isn't that interesting? The only way to Jesus is through John the Baptist, if I can put it like that. That is to say, the only way to benefit from the rescue of Jesus is through the repentance of John the Baptist. Those who said they wouldn't repent didn't believe and benefit from Jesus the Saviour. Those who repented and believed John the Baptist believed and benefited from Jesus the Saviour. It's a tale of two prophets. And those two prophets go together even though they're very different. So John the Baptist was a prophet who said, guys, you need to weep and mourn for your sin and repent. Jesus said, I've come to bring rescue. On the face of it, they were, they were saying different things. But actually they fitted together perfectly. So look at verse 31. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? And then he gives a little story. And you can imagine this story. They're like children sitting in the marketplace. So there they are in, in, a, in a Middle Eastern marketplace. Children sitting around. You know, they're out of school and they're sitting around. And then you go up to them. 
and and you say you, you play the pipe or the flute to them. So you say, "Come on, I'm going to play a cheerful tune." So you go and play a cheerful tune. La di da di da di da. Come along, let's have a dance. And they just sit there. I'm not going to join in with a cheerful dance. And then you say, "Okay, I'll, I'll sing a dirge. I'll sing a sad song. I'll sing a lament. I'll sing a sorrowful song." Why don't you come and join in and we can we can have a good week together? Um, you know, with my sorrowful song. And they just sit there. You, you get the picture. You know, children who won't join in. They won't join in with something cheerful. They won't join in with something miserable. They won't join in whatever you do. It doesn't matter what music you play, they're not going to join in. That's the, that's the little illustration that Jesus gives. And he says, and that's what you guys are like. Because, verse 33, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. That is to say, he came, as it were, singing a dirge, a lament. We need to be sorry for our sins. John the Baptist's ministry wasn't a joyful ministry, it was a sad ministry. We need to be sorrowful for our sins, said John the Baptist. And you just said he'd got a demon. What an odd man, you said. I don't like his message at all. This is the posh, respectable people said that. And then the Son of Man, says Jesus, talking about himself, came eating and drinking. That is to say, Jesus' ministry was marked by cheerfulness and joy. And you said, oh, I don't like this cheerfulness and joy. He's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you wouldn't join the gloomy message of John the Baptist, because you wouldn't admit that you're sinners. You wouldn't be sorry for your sin. And therefore, when I came with a cheerful message of rescue and salvation and, 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 and joy, you wouldn't join in with that either. Because the only way to enjoy the, enjoy the, the rescue is by first repenting. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? And here's the punchline 35. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now, wisdom, as you may know in the Old Testament, is a kind of way of speaking, it's almost a personification, it's a way of speaking poetically of the way God's arranged the world. Wisdom is, in the book of Proverbs, is called a great lady. She's a fine and, and beautiful and wonderful and noble and virtuous lady. And, and she's a sort of picture of the way God's organized the world in a well, in a good, beautiful way. And, and to be a child of wisdom is to be one who, who, who lives in line with the way God's organized the world. And Jesus says wisdom, the way God's organized the world, is going to be proved right by her children. And as you read through Luke's Gospel, you see some of wisdom's children, and you also see some of folly's children. And we've seen some of them so far. So we've seen the elders of the Jews in the first story who were folly's children. We think we deserve God to give us good things. And we've seen the centurion who was one of wisdom's children. We've seen the widow of Nain, who was one of Wisdom's children, just desperate need and grief and weeping and misery, and God reached out and helped her. We've seen the blind, the lame, the deaf, the poor, the dead, and Jesus helping them. Those are Wisdom's children. It's a picture of, it's not lots of different people, it's a picture of, it's a picture of us if we're Christians. People who know that we desperately need God's help. Now, Here's, here's, the, here's the crunch. We get to this in the last beautiful little passage. Jesus says wisdom is proved right by her children. In other words, God's way of running the world and God's way of running Christianity, if I can put it that way, is going to be proved right by Christians. 
So let's look at the last passage, and we'll, we'll see, hold, hold this together and see how this, this works at the end. There's a beautiful passage, um, 7.36, to the end of the chapter. And you, again, you see these two attitudes. So you've got, you've got a Pharisee. We've just met the Pharisees in, in verse 30. The people who, re, who wouldn't be baptized by John because they thought they deserved good things. They didn't want to repent. Uh, but he invites Jesus to have dinner with him. Because it's, Jesus is a well-known preacher. So it's good to have him to dinner. So he goes there and he reclines or sits at the table. And shock horror, verse 37, because the, the doors are open, it's not a kind of house with the doors all shut and locked. A woman who lived a sinful life, maybe a prostitute or, or somebody who is obviously a moral failure, learns Jesus is eating there and she comes in with a jar of perfume. A hideously embarrassing in the middle of dinner. You can imagine the middle of the dinner party. So this, this, this prostitute comes up, stands behind Jesus, weeping, wets his feet with her tears, wipes his feet with her hair, kisses them and pours perfume on them. It's kind of thing you don't want to happen at your dinner party, isn't it? It's really embarrassing. And so the Pharisee says to himself, verse 39, I'm shocked. He says, I'm shocked that this man, who, who, who people think is a prophet, should allow this sinful person, this moral failure, to, 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 to do this, to touch him. I'm surprised he's, he's, he's allowing her to have anything to do with him. And Jesus turns to his host and says to his host, Simon, I've got something to tell you. It's an awkward moment at a dinner party, isn't it? If you're the host and the Lord Jesus says, um, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And you think, okay, tell me. <laughs> and then he tells an incredibly simple story. He says two people owned money to a, owed money to a moneylender. One owned 500 denarii, the other 50. Um, neither of them could pay. He, he cancelled both debts. Which of them is going to love him more? It's not a difficult question. So they, the, the, the man says, well, I suppose the one who had the biggest debt. Kind of obvious, isn't it? It's a bit of a no-brainer. And Jesus says, yes, well done. Well done. Verse 43, you've judged correctly. Clever chap. And then he turns to the woman and he says, do you see this woman? And he makes a really poignant series of contrasts. He says, I came into your house and you didn't give me water to wash my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Yeah, you didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. So I can tell from that, he says, verse 47, that, that although she had many sins, they've been forgiven. I know that. It, her love proves it. They're not forgiven because she's loved. Her love is evidence that they've been forgiven. And by implication, I can tell that you haven't been forgiven very much. Because you don't love very much. So, how do people become loving? Answer, people become loving by being forgiven. How does God put love into the heart of a human being who naturally, and by nature I only love people who love me, don't you? Of course I love my family and people who are nice to me and so on. It's easy to love them. As Jesus said, everybody does that. But how does a love come into my heart that will be a love for God and a love for difficult people? A love for people I wouldn't naturally love? Answer, that love comes into my heart when I realise that I'm a sinner. I realise I'm in desperate need of forgiveness. I need to repent. I have nothing to offer God. I don't deserve anything from God. 
and God freely forgives me. And my heart is melted by that. And I begin to find a love welling up in my heart for awkward people. Isn't that right? Isn't that Christian experience for all of us? Think of a friend of mine from a Central Asian Republic brought up in a Muslim family. Lovely lad. He's a good friend of mine. He, he pastors a house church in, in that um, Central Asian um, Republic. It's, a, it's an Islamic police state. And he told me how he came to Christ. He said, I went to, I went to a, a church. He was a very zealous Muslim. He said, I went to a church. His sister had been converted. He said, I went to a church. And he said to me, and he's a big, strong, strapping farmer. I mean, he's not a kind of weedy sort of poet or anything like that. You know, he's a, he's a strong, straightforward man's man. But he said to me, he said, I went to this church and he said, I had never seen such love. And it melted my heart. And he'd seen something in authentic Christianity that he'd never seen in the mosque. Never seen in society outside. He'd seen God working love in people's hearts. And Jesus says wisdom is proved right by her children. God's way of doing things, which is first repentance and then the joy of forgiveness, which leads to love. God's way of doing things is the best way of doing things. God's way of doing things is the wisest way of doing things. God's way of doing things is the only way that human beings are going to be made loving human beings. They are going to be changed in our hearts. And you see it just at the end, in the last few verses. Um, chapter 8. Uh, Jesus, travelling around proclaiming the good news with the twelve apostles. And this wonderful mention of these women, verse 2, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. I don't know what that means, but knowing the significance of seven in Bible language... Seven demons means really, really, really total evil. And she never forgot what Jesus had done for, for, for her and the others, Joanna and Susanna and many others. And because they had been forgiven and healed and because they'd known that they had desperate need and God had rescued them, their lives were never the same again. So it's a wonderful thought for us, isn't it? That wisdom is proved right by all her children. And the question for us is, will we be wisdom's children? Will we be men and women who, who, who agree that God's way of doing things is right? Will we, will we be men and women who, as it were, come to John the Baptist? I don't mean literally because he's not around anymore, but who, who will come to repent again and again, not just at the beginning of our Christian lives, but will say day by day, Sunday by Sunday, I, I, I don't deserve anything from God at all. Particular danger, of course, if, if you and I have been Christians for a number of years, we begin to think we do deserve things. Begin to think we're doing quite well. Do you ever feel like that? I'm not asking you to tell me. <laughs> but it's a danger, isn't it? Or, or if you're in a position of leadership in a, in a church, or you, you lead a Bible study group, or a small group, or something like that, you begin to think, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm becoming a more senior Christian. Just a reminder that I need always to come to Jesus through John the Baptist, that is, through, through repentance that I, I, I deserve nothing. And God in his goodness through Jesus has given me everything. And that's a wonderful thing. And the more you and I meditate on that, the more you and I let that get into our hearts, uh, the more we'll become wisdom, we'll be wisdom's children who, who show to the world that God's way of doing things is right. And so that other people begin to see that in real, authentic Christianity,
There is a power of God to change the world because it's the power of God to change our hearts. I think that's the big theme of these, these wonderful passages. Um, hope I'm right. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Let's be quiet for a moment and um, I'll pray. God our Father, we thank you for these people who acknowledged that your way is right, your way of doing things. We praise you for that word of the Lord Jesus, that wisdom is proved right by all her children. And we ask that we might be wisdom's children, penitent, undeserving, and just tremendously grateful for all your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that like that uh, sinful woman at the dinner, we might be those who pour out our gratitude for forgiven sin in love for the Lord Jesus and the service of others. We ask it in his name. Amen.